Welcome to Shift with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. Welcome ladies and gentlemen to another episode of the Shift with CJ podcast. Today on the podcast I have someone really special because my guest on the show today wears many hats. He is an author, a public speaker. He's got more than 25 years of experience. That's a hat in itself. Then he also is like works with CEOs, board of directors, bankers, people from the Fortune 500 and a lot of people from like the health and wellness space. And that's what really got my attention because he's just all over the place. He's also a lifelong marathoner and a legal advisor. Saul, welcome to the show. Thank you, CJ. Great to be talking to you today. Great to have you here today. I was going to make my first attempt at pronouncing your last name. Tell me how did I do it? Finkelstein. Finkel, Finkelstein. Finkelstein. Was that That's anywhere it. close? Finkelstein. Oh, okay. Perfect. Finkelstein is perfect. <laughs> Amazing. So happy to have you. Got my first name. So tell me. You got my first name on the first try. So sorry. That's good. You got my first name on the yeah. first try. So no, that wasn't. Yeah, I've had I've had a lot of coffees today. You see, that wasn't very hard. <laughs> so, tell me, Saul, how do you manage all of these things? How have you been doing all the things like being an author, a public speaker? You've had so much of experience in corporate governance, finance. You know, all the all the crazy stuff, mergers, acquisitions. And you've been running marathons and you've got such an interest in health and wellness space. So how do you manage all of this? Well, it didn't start that way. It didn't start with, uh, I came out. Okay. Of let's hear your school. story. How did it start? Yeah. Well, I, I won't take you the every moment of the whole ordeal, but, uh, when I mm-hmm. came out of law school, uh, I was pretty much just like anybody else. Uh, I was trying to figure out what, what my, I was supposed to be doing as a young corporate um, and that took and certainly a lot longer than I thought it would uh, so I in the beginning I really didn't do very much else other lawyer that I could be uh, but a few years into that it um, seemed to me that there must be more to life than just being good at your profession. That seemed to be the base to start uh, the rest of your life. So if once you have a base in what you're trained to do, then you could start thinking about, well, how could this lead to other things and what else am I interested in and what else um, motivates me? So I started uh, running uh, occasionally, uh, which led to me running marathons. Um, which led me to having an interest in health and wellness generally, because if you're going to be a lifelong marathon runner, you need to have a long-term plan about your health and wellness. So um, that led me down many paths of uh, for my, on my own personal journey in terms of health and wellness. But uh, one of the things that occurred to me uh, probably about, 15 or 18 years ago was that 
I had gained a fair amount of knowledge and experience just doing my own thing and mm-hmm. being around the fitness world. I started reaching out to people who were starting in the fitness world and seeing if they, if I could share some of my experience and insight with them. So I started working with people who were starting fitness companies in non-traditional spaces. So they weren't just trying to open up the next gym or yoga studio. They were trying to build out different platforms for delivering fitness or to support the fitness industry. And uh, as these things tend to happen, one thing leads to another. Um, You meet people along the way. and, And I started advising people in startups uh, through their, um, you know, capital raising, through their expansions. Um, And that brings me to today where uh, I continue on my own personal fitness journey in terms of marathons and everything it takes to support that, which is uh, quite a bit. As the years um, continue, you have to constantly adjust. Uh, Through my corporate law practice, which is not all that dissimilar from most corporate lawyers in New York in the sense that I deal with financing and mergers and acquisitions and investment bankers and things like that, uh, to also advising um, both on a legal and on a business uh, front uh, companies in the fitness space um, in terms of strategic direction, uh, key hires and, and things like that, as well as as legal work. Interesting. That's that's a nice outline that you've summarized. Now, when you speak about non traditional platforms or non traditional ways of you know enhancing fitness, which is not your typical yoga studio or a gym, what kind of non traditional places are we talking about? Uh, so, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of the first uh, early ventures that I was affiliated with was a group uh, near Princeton University in New Jersey, and their idea was to stop shop of medical and fitness um, experience, meaning that uh, customers would first have a thorough physical medical examination by a staff of uh, physicians uh, across all uh, modalities and and specialties. Uh, which would then prescribe a fitness routine, which would be on the second floor of the building. So you have a medical on the first floor. The second floor would be fitness, where the trainers were um, in communication with the medical side and uh, implementing the medical recommendations in terms of uh, cardio, strength training, stretching, flexibility, whatever was prescribed for. And if that person had medical serious chronic medical uh, conditions, they were working with people who were trained to work with them in that, um, with those limitations. So uh, I would say that was a non-traditional way of um, thinking about both medicine and fitness. Usually those aren't brought that closely together. Uh, You see your doctor, you see your trainer, or you go to the gym and you try to have them mesh, but this was an attempt to do that uh, directly. So that was, I would say, somewhat non-traditional. Uh, to mm-hmm. today, I am working with a spend quite a bit of time actually with a leading 
uh, brand in the uh, fitness and wellness space, which um, the founder developed a uh, mindful way of, it's called my, really mindful fitness, where you're not just exercising for the sake of exercising, but you are constantly being reminded through the instructor how your physical is attached to your mental. So when things become challenging physically, what does that trigger for you emotionally? And what limitations are you uh, consciously or unconsciously putting on yourself in experiencing the physical demands of, of, of a workout? Um, so combining the mindfulness and the physical, um, they developed a method that is uh, at, at the time that it was developed was fairly unique. Now a lot of people have made that connection, but um, these were not people simply who were, you know, slapping uh, exercise videos up on YouTube and or you know putting a subscription wall uh, in front of people to do fairly generic, you know, workouts. They had thought of uh, fitness and wellness and in different ways and different ways of delivering it to uh, customers. Interesting. That is, that is very interesting. And honestly, I've been into fitness for the last, not as long as you, but like I've been in fitness for the last 18 years and, sure. you know, a little bit of running. I, I was never a fan of running, but like a lot of CrossFit, bodybuilding, weightlifting, mixed martial arts. So I've always loved to be in that fitness thing. And for the last almost decade i used to try to go to the gym you know it was sort of, of like a punishment you're just going and exercising and sometimes you don't feel good but you're still exercising because your because your awareness or your attention is all around the physical body and you're only thinking okay you know what how can i look better how can i perform better and how can i jump higher run faster name it name your modality and then in the last say five to six years i've personally changed that approach and where I now look at the body more holistically and just not extending it to the physical body but like you mentioned the mental body the energetic body there's all and the thing is we have most of us have a reductionist approach so we're always thinking oh how can we isolate that next best thing and okay if it's body how can we just focus on the body and let's that is the whole thing but when you look at nature, and when you look at most of the things in nature, nothing exists in a single isolate. It exists in a complex nature of very interconnected things. And every time you remove one part of that interconnectedness, the whole system kind of, I mean, it can survive, but you know, it's not gonna be optimal. So I completely agree with you. And it's such a great thing to know that more and more people because of either social media or, you know, health companies or you know more science that we can learn about today or products we're sort of you know looking at the bigger picture and seeing how we can incorporate like you know you, life sucks if you have a six-pack but you know if your hormones are down and you know you're angry at everyone else so there has to be sort of that kind of a balance and i'm happy that you took this approach where you're looking at everything so tell me when you're looking at all of these companies, like now you've got like a good interest, you're advising people, you've seen so many things change in the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 26 years. <laughs> so <laughs> what are some of the things that you've, and the fitness industry is also, 
it's like most of the other things, right? You have a trend that comes in. It's like the typical nutrition or the diet industry. One day, someone might be having actins and some day will be high carb, low fat, low carb, high fat, high protein. So all of these things have their phases and some last for some time. Some are really good. So what are like some of the things that you've seen in the past few years that you thought or you had this vision that, oh, this is not going to work? Or and what are might be some of the things that you were like, oh, perfect. This is something that we have to keep our eye on because this might explode in the future. Do you, after so many years, have you developed that kind of an intuition where your gut says like, ah, this is going to be there? Or is it more of your analytical and like, you know, mathematical brain? So I just wanted to get your take on that. Really interesting question because it's hard not to answer that question without thinking about the effect that the COVID pandemic has had on all of this, because I think none of us envisioned that people would find it interesting and stimulating to be working out from home. And, you know, Peloton comes along uh, as an example. And, um, you know, so you buy this bike and basically you could live your fitness life through our platform and you could do that all in from the comfort of your home. Uh, when that concept first rolled out, I have to admit that I didn't think that that was going to be sustainable because I thought that people would, when in out of necessity, would do that if they if the gyms are closed and you're basically confined to your home and you still want to work out. Yes, that would be a good alternative. But when things went closer back to normal, uh, which was sort of where we are now, um, I, I, I always thought that people need community. And there are online communities, and, um, and these brands try to create community through their online platforms, but uh, there's really no substitute for in-person communities. So um, I think there, so you're talking about trends. I think there is a place in the fitness world for um, online um, platforms to deliver their, um, their product that way. But I also think that the people who can go beyond that, the brands who can go beyond just a, a digital world into a um, in-person world as well, um, in, in particular, in, in the context of this environment where we are in, in terms of uh, pandemic, in terms of the economy, in terms of all the upheaval in the world, uh, that's really going to be sustainable. So uh, unfortunately, and I think this might be more true in fitness than in maybe some other industries, uh, there are a lot of people out there who are looking to uh, glob on to the next trend and ride it for as long as they can and when it peters out, then they'll go on to something else. And not there are not a lot of people who are thinking about the long term and how do I build something that is going to be sustainable through all the uh, variants and um, trends that that come out. And so you see a lot of a lot of brands that come and go. You know, um, I, I don't want to get you know too specific, but yeah. certainly um, you know like a, like. Uh, this is not a brand that came and went, but it's a brand that uh, that I think has peaked um, for a variety of reasons, like SoulCycle. Um, you know, five years ago, that was the hottest thing around. I think that the pandemic did a lot to undermine it, but 
uh, you know, people move on. People get tired of, um, of whatever that do thing is. And so the thing that interests me most and the thing that I look for and try to advise fitness companies on is trying to build something that goes beyond the trend, something that, uh, you know, you look deeply into why people start exercising and then stop, which is what most people do. People, you know, particularly around the beginning of the new year, uh, they'll, they'll get committed for, you know, two or three weeks and then they'll they'll stop and then maybe someplace along the the year they'll pick up again briefly but you know what really interests me is why is it that people can't maintain that uh, same enthusiasm that they have on january 1st on february 1st and i think the people the, the companies and brands that can unlock that secret and make exercise something more uh sustainable for the average person i think that's the key to the next um uh, wave of success in the fitness industry. And I, I think you have to start by thinking of, you know, what is missing from most uh, fitness uh, platforms today that don't keep, don't keep people engaged over the long term. Uh, and I think some of these companies believe that uh, their you know, attrition is is acceptable because there are always more people out there to replace the people that leave. So they're not particularly. Everybody wants to have high, um, uh, you know, very low, um, uh, very high retention rate. They don't want to have a lot of turnover. Um, but uh, I don't think they build their long term. That people that will start exercising on January 1st, will still be around on October 1st and November 1st um, because it's they're trying to find a trend as opposed to trying to find a solution. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, 100% agree that most of the people, it's, it's, it's a very deeper why when you, and it's, again, it's, we're all biochemically individual. We're all have a different sort of like, uh, you know, culture comes in, where you were grown comes in, life challenges comes in. So there's like a big mix. But I would say that if someone could unlock that, that would be the next best thing. And if you're listening to this podcast and Saul just gave you a great idea to make the next big thing. So take some time and think over it. Think of how you can do this in the long term, solve a real problem, add real value and really change the dynamics. Think about the long term, guys. Now, you've done... 26 am i right it's 26 marathons yes that's correct okay so first what is a lifelong marathoner is it does that mean that for the entire for from now or in the last 26 years you're committed to do a marathon every year or something along those lines something along those lines so it's 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 not as if uh, it's a guarantee, right? Because mm -hmm. there are so many variables that go into making it to the starting line. Uh, so I try not to be presumptuous with myself and say that, uh, okay, I just finished the marathon. And then I know that in 365 days from now, I'm going to be in the starting line again. I strive to get there, but I don't make any assumptions that I will. And uh, for the most part, um, I've made it. I ran my first marathon in 1988. Um, and I missed a few years. I had a, my son, my second son was born uh, very close to um, the time when it was deep into marathon training. So I decided I, that was not a good year to be running a marathon. Um, and there were other 
times where I actually just didn't feel like it. It was, uh, didn't feel motivated enough to do it. But, um, you know, I haven't done the math, but however many years 1988 was uh, from now, um, and I, and you put in 26 annual marathons during the course of that, you know, it comes out to pretty close to, you know, most years. And when I say lifelong marathoner, I mean that my motivation for doing it is to run, feel good about how I'm running, um, to hopefully not slow down too much from year to year, uh, although that's somewhat inevitable, um, but to come into marathon training with a base of fitness that allows me to uh, proceed with the training without getting injured. So most of the people that I ran marathons with um, in the in the nineties, uh, not only are not running marathons today, they're not running at all um, because they um, push themselves too much. They came into training without a strong enough base. Um, they try to do more marathons than their body really uh, wanted them to do. So you know, I, I I knew a lot of people who would do several marathons a year. And to me, that just didn't seem sustainable that you're constantly in this, in this state of uh, intense training um, constantly in the state of putting stress onto your body. Uh, and it seemed that that was not something that was going to make a thoner. So I've kept it to no more than one a year. And I do a lot of things during the course of the year to get me ready for it. So um, a, it's not where I have to turn the switch on and uh, to start training. It's I've already uh, been in that mode. I've already done a lot of things to get to that point where I could start running training runs of 15 miles and 20 miles without uh, hurting myself or without, you know, putting uh, stress on my body that it's not used to taking. So it's looking at things from a long-term perspective and it's looking at things from a perspective of how do I keep myself uh, in the best position to start training when the time comes during the year. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting things that I heard you say is about your friends who ran marathons with you earlier, but now they were, you know, pushing it too much. And personally, whenever I have like, I meet people and they tell me that, hey, I'm having some issues, like, you know, it could be shin splints or stress factor, or like when they get into more details, like got some runner's knee, Achilles tendonitis, you know, things like that. My first question to them is, how long have you been running or how much have you been running? So injuries, and I think there was a, there was a stat that said 79% of all people who start running in their first year, they get injured. And some of these injuries can be more complex. And this is one reason why people don't last running so much um, because of injuries. And again, we're still, as a society, we haven't accepted that, a, like, let's say for this intense a marathon, like running a marathon is so much more than just running that marathon, right? Like you mentioned, you've, you've got to prepare for it. You need to see what kind of structural imbalances do you have or not. You have to see what kind of volume of training that you're using. Is it, you know, is it segmented? Is it sequential? There are so many other aspects to it for you to not just burn out the tank. And on top of that, we're, it's, 
it's like, you know, nutrition, health, recovery, mm. resilience, all of these things interplay. So do you have a, after all these years, do you have a coach or a mentor that you sort of like get your programs through or do you design them yourself? Like what's your, what's your approach? Because it is complex. It, it, it is complex. And um, I do a lot of reading uh, in, the, in the area. I've read, you know, lots of books on marathon training, lots of programs. Um, I, uh, my son, who's now 31, uh, is going to be running the marathon, the New York Marathon with me this year. And uh, he's just discovering a lot of these things that I've been looking at and reading for a long time. And I would say almost every day we have a conversation. We had a conversation yesterday about uh, marathon training and how he was reading where your long run should be at at least a minute per mile slower than your marathon pace. And we had a whole discussion about how does that actually work? If you've been training at a, say a nine minute mile pace uh, and you want to do the marathon at an eight minute mile pace and you're only training up to 20 miles, which is what's usually recommended by most training experts. How do you find that extra minute per mile and add another six miles on top of that in something that you've never done before? So, uh, um, it's just an example, sort of the common wisdom about uh, marathon training and then kind of analyzing and see what works for me. I know that that, that particularly worked for me, that um, I find that exercise is very specific, meaning that if you want to run, um, uh, if you want to run a mile in seven minutes, you should run a mile in seven minutes as often as you can. And that's the best way to do it. So if you want to run a marathon at a eight minute per mile pace, um, you should probably be running your, your 20 mile runs and close to that, not every single one, but you should have a few so that you have experience. So, um, finding that kind of training method that works for you, but also all the other things that you mentioned that, uh, nutrition throughout the year so that your, um, your body weight is, um, is at an optimal level for your, your training. And that means different things to different people. Uh, some people have to be super lean. Some people need more mass in order to do that. Uh, uh, balance and flexibility. So uh, a great example of, uh, of this kind of thing uh, just happened to me uh, um, last year. So I was uh, scheduled to run the New York Marathon in November of 2021. And I did my usual training uh, of long base mileage and balance and flexibility training and everything else and weight training for uh, upper body strength. Uh, and I came through it fine. And we were down to the last few days before the marathon. And all of a sudden, my left knee started bothering me. And I said, oh, you know, I have felt this before. It doesn't seem unusual. And um, so, you know, another day or two went by now we're, you know, two days before the marathon and, um, it really was hurting and I was having trouble walking and it's like, this doesn't, I, I can't run the marathon with this. This doesn't feel right. And make a long story short, there was nothing really wrong with my knee beyond the fact that, um, I had imbalances in my, uh, muscular, uh, system. So, um, my, my glutes and the, my hips, um, were not strong enough to sustain, um, 
a structure where there was not putting undue pressure on my knee. So through physical therapy, uh, we worked on those things and, uh, you know, I've been pain-free ever since. So, you know, here, here it was, I'd been, you know, running marathons for decades. It's more or less doing the same thing for the last 10 or 15 years without any problem. And then, uh, a light goes on, you know, two days before the marathon saying, there's something wrong that you're not even aware of. So I, I had no idea that I had this imbalance. It never uh, came up anywhere else. But when I went to physical therapy the first time and the physical therapy therapist asked me to do certain things, which I couldn't do. And they said, well, you know, that's because you have weakness in this area. And I actually had never, you know, worked on those things. So um, it's, you know, every, every person's body is different and needs different things. But I think we all have uh, you know, different alignment and strength. They will come to the fore if you don't um, address them. At some point, they will come and address you, which happened to me. And um, I, th I think a lot of people will come uh, will come to a situation like that where, okay, my knee really hurts. I should stop, take off three months, and my knee will get better, and then I'll start running again. And um, you're not sure the issue is not necessarily that you're putting too much stress on it. The issue is that your body is not, uh, doesn't have the strength and balance to sustain that stress. So, um, that, it's, that's a it's very a, good example. Yeah. It's, you never quite get to the, I mean, I, I probably have imbalances now that I'm not aware of that may, you know, come out up and, uh, raise their hand and, and make me pay attention to them at some point. But, um, you know, I, I think that if you try to uh, address strength and flexibility in all parts of your body, you know, from the neck down to the feet, um, you're you're going to be able to um, stave off most of these chronic injuries. Look, uh, there are people who they're just not built for uh, for running marathons. And, that, and that's obviously totally okay. Um, because they're just the way their body is put together. So, you know, I wouldn't suggest that you try to fit a round peg into a square hole and say, you know, even though, uh, I have these issues, I'm still going to, you know, run marathons year after year. And that it just may not be for everybody, but, uh, I would suspect though, that there is some kind of workout that is sustainable over the long term for most people. And it's a question of, combining your interest with your capability. So if you're interested in swimming uh, and your body is uh, aligned for that, then you found, you know, your example, I think in my case, uh, distance running uh, is what my body was capable of being um, accomplishing through uh, uh, all the things that I talked about. And that's, uh, you know, my sweet spot. So interesting. And like, this is such a good thing for everyone who's listening to note down is looking at Saul's example there, you know, he's used the example of a marathon and running, but you can apply this to your life as well. Like if you wanted to be successful at anything, whether it's, you know, starting a new business or, you know, going for a marathon or doing something else, then there is, you could do a good job or an okay job. If you're doing, if you're looking for something average, but every time you want to go beyond average, there are multiple things that you probably don't know about. And if you think you know everything, then that's just your ego speaking. And that's the time that you start looking for 
more information, any information that can help you, whether look for a mentor or look at a book like Saul did or talk to someone, talk to someone who's running with you or a doctor or a physician. And when something hurts or something isn't right, like we mentioned earlier, it's not an individualized approach that you can just, you know, I'll let my knee go and it'll be fine. No, we're talking about systems biology. We're talking about a holistic integration of systems biology, which means that if something is wrong, then there are multiple things. Is the iceberg effect all. You can only see the tip of the iceberg, but there are so many things that can be going down. So, And that's a good time where you don't ask your best friend about it, but talk to someone or read something or you know, raise up your hands. This is what I tell everyone every time you're stuck. Raise your hand, ask for help, and help will come some way or the form, but you have, you've got to do it. And we're talking about nutrition. Now, if my math isn't great, but like when you look at the average statistics, you could build, depending on the person's size and the body and the speed, about like 100 calories or so per mile. And if you're looking at a typical marathon, you guys have in miles, 26 something, 26.2 miles. That means you're burning averagely about 2600 calories and that's for a norm for average people it's more than the daily intake of the calories for men and for women so what's your secret because if you're if you're eating all the time then you have gastric distress and then you can't perform that well you feel heavy so walk me through your sort of a nutrition approach and we also know that in a lot of these things pure nutrition because we weren't made to run 26.2 miles right so we weren't meant to do that all the time so sometimes when you want to accelerate this process you bring in tech you bring in supplements you bring in some other things so talk to me about like what are you adding to increase your performance that's it yeah the other part of that is hydration as well um but looking at nutrition uh, as a whole um i think that uh Carbohydrates become very important when you are mileage, um, and there are you know better carbohydrates than others. I think complex carbohydrates are better than uh, simple carbohydrates. So, uh, you know, fruits and, and vegetables and whole grains and uh, things like that uh, I find are very helpful. Uh, but during the actual day of the marathon, it's, it, that is a challenge that. Uh, continues to um, challenge me in terms of uh, finding the way to at least maintain enough nutrition during the course of the marathon day and hydration that you're not doing so much that you're in a state of gastric distress like you describe and not so little that you're uh, drained. So I'll give you a, a an example of that. The first marathon that I ran in 1988 uh, I decided without consulting with anybody, but just through my own um, talking to myself, is that a good way to save time in running the marathon is not stopping to drink any water. So I'm going to save at least 10 minutes by not stopping to drink any water. And so that meant that I drank almost no water during the 26 miles. And uh, I luckily had no long-term damage from that. And, uh, but I do remember finishing it feeling completely drained. Um, and, uh, and how later that day I was, uh, just in a state of depletion, um, you know, not medically, but, uh, I just couldn't eat and drink enough. And, you know, by the next day or two, I was fine. But, um, you know, the idea of 
taking enough in during the in the course of the marathon that uh, you're at least maintaining a level of hydration that allows you to get to the next mile uh, without weighing you down. And I, I use these gels. Uh, there, there are lots of them. I happen to like the ones without caffeine because I don't react well to caffeine. If I have any caffeine, I seem to be up for days after that. So I take the non-caffeinated one and there's some carbohydrates in there. There's some uh, sugars, there's some uh, amino acids in there. Uh, and I think each pack has a about 100 calories, and I usually go through about eight of those. Between that and getting uh, a good carb-based meal the night before, um, it, it, it's, it, it straddles the line of getting you just enough to get to power you and fuel you through the uh, through the marathon. But uh, one of the fun things about running the marathon is that when you first finish, uh, you don't have any appetite whatsoever. That you couldn't even think about food. And so you try to eat, you know, you have egg or a half of a bagel or something like that. Uh, about three hours later, you're about as hungry as you've ever been in your entire life. And uh, you just eat anything that isn't nailed down um, because I think your body is, is now settled enough to recognize that it's actually uh, had been, has been deprived of nutrition. Uh, one of the other things about marathons that um, is important to consider if you're actually thinking about running a marathon is the time of day that the marathon is. Uh, a lot of marathons in smaller cities start really early in the morning. I ran one in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida um, many years ago, and it started at 6 a.m., which to me is a lot better time to start because if you're going to run a four-hour marathon and it starts at 6, you know, you're basically going to be home by 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, in New York City, because it's so big, um, the first runners don't actually start till after nine. And those are usually the elite and the professionals. So you'll be starting at 10 or 10.30 in the morning when you add four hours so you get home. It's four o'clock. So you really haven't eaten a meal the entire day. Um, and that's something that I don't, I don't think a lot of uh, – uh, training regimens or marathon advisors uh, talk enough about is that uh, given everything else that's going on and given the massive energy expenditure that you're going to do during the course of the marathon, the timing of it kind of sets you up for not eating for an entire day uh, on a day when you're running 26 miles. So um, you need to be mindful of the hour of the day that the marathon is starting and calculating uh you're adding your marathon time and adding another hour on top of that until you're, you know, able to eat again. So, uh, so you may want to have time is critical. Yeah, you, right. If you, if you're not going off until ten thirty, eleven o'clock in the morning, you probably should be eating something fairly substantial at seven a.m. Mm -hmm. Have you tried or have you heard about ketone esters? Has this no, come under your radar? No. So it's uh, basically the idea is that you can get your energy from two main sources, fuel substrates, like we like to call it. One is a carbohydrate-based fuel source, which you mentioned, the, the whole grains, the, uh, you know, the rice, the potatoes, the yams, things like that. And the other way you could do it is by burning free fatty acids in your liver. And this is what gave the this this premise is what gave the birth to the ketogenic diet which is you know has gone really high up in the trend and everyone's been using it where it first was used for epilepsy and now you know various fitness trainers celebrities are using it but but there is a way 
where you can, well, or what, let me start explaining what ketone ester is, is. It's a sort of like, a, I would call it a chemical, but you ingest that and it raises your blood level of ketones just like you would have if you have been either fasting for three days and ketones basically they have the they are they have more energy per unit than carbohydrates and they can fuel your cells up to 25 percent more now we're talking about brain cells heart cells that's why the ketogenic diet has got so famous but i've been looking at protocols where if you could if you could be fat adapted which is which means that you're able to burn fat as a fuel source because most of the people cannot they've been using carbohydrates for a very long time and then in your training if you then combine carbohydrates along with some really good ketone esters then your energy shoots up the roof because now you have two fuel sources simultaneously and ketone esters is a simple drink it doesn't even get digested because it goes straight to the liver so you have this glycolytic energy stores from the carbohydrates and then you have this ketone energy which is good for your brain and it, it make you last longer as well so this is another really cool trick that they've been doing a lot of studies recently now the tour de france some of the cyclists have been using it so it's starting to get more popular that they sort of like make their body adapt to these two fuel sources and you don't really use this ketone ester in your training much but you use it on the day and you feel like enormous amounts of energy. So this is one thing that I've uh, come across. And again, the other thing that you said, any fast digesting carbohydrates, the only thing for me, what I feel is that when we look at carbohydrates as well, there are two different, there are various different kind of polysaccharides of uh, carbohydrates. And when you look at fruits normally, what fruit does is the sugar or the fructose in, uh, in fruits when they get broken down they go straight to the liver and your liver can hold about 150 200 grams of carbohydrates but it is your muscle that can hold about 500 to 600 grams of carbohydrates and what happens is when you're running or when you're in intense activity the first thing you burn up is your muscle glycogen stores and only when that is completely depleted you go to the liver so what I tell people is that if you're doing something really hectic, then using one of those fast gels like you mentioned, which have some more complex form of Vitago or something else uh, that really goes to the muscle rather than using uh, a banana or an apple. Because a lot of times people will come up to me and ask me like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to do this all naturally and I would love to like, you know, put a few bananas in my cycling ride or something. I'm like, you could do that. But then again, you go through the gastric distress problem because your body at that time when you're performing it's not really meant to digest any food your parasympathetic nervous system is shut down and your sympathetic which is your fight or flight the adrenaline cortisol corticoid uh, releasing hormones are switched up and that inhibits digestion so anyone who's listening and you know you want to do go on a very long run or a ride think of what Saul told you have all these gels they can really help you out but if you decided to like sit down eat or you know take a break it might not be that great so i'm happy that you know we address that for the people who are, might be thinking of getting into this and so tell me this all now you know we already covered that you're you're not just a marathoner you're doing so many different things right advising people you're working with fortune 500 how do you manage your time and tasks at hand is there like some sort of a routine that you have 
you have where or so if anyone who's like listening to this and they're and trust me a lot of people around the world right now the thing that they're really like struggling to manage is their time and this multitude of tasks that have been dumped on them so i want to learn from you and like you know share with us like what's your hack or what's your secret or what have you learned that you know keeps you up and running yeah i think the key word here is flexibility um you i think you start with a schedule like i'm gonna run in the morning and i'm gonna do weight training in the afternoon and i'm gonna do some stretching at night that that's that's your plan a right and then you have to be ready that plan a is gonna go out the window (laughs) Right. Plan A is going to go out the window, you know, more times than not. And you're going to have to find not only a plan B, but a plan C, D and E. So um, I I think it's really having a mindset of uh, I'm going to find time to do this whenever it presents itself. So and that's going to be different at different times of your life and different times of the year. Uh, You know, if it's holiday season, you have family obligations. It's there's going to be it's going to then say in the middle of summer when people are not around and you have uh, the days are longer and you have more time for yourself. So I think that if you're a person who says, I I can't work out in the morning, I can only work out at night. um, I think it's going to be more difficult to sustain that over a long period of time because. Not every night is going to present itself uh, as an opportunity. The morning is going to have to do it and, and, and vice versa, obviously. So for me, you know, I went from trying to squeeze runs in uh, before my kids would get up when they were little uh, so that I, I would be there when they would get up. So I would, you know, go out really early in the morning uh, to, you know, the point now where it's mostly work obligations that, would interfere with, uh, with training. So, um, I have gone to the gym at 11 o'clock in the morning and 11 o'clock at night. So, you know, sometimes you have to just go with the, what, what the obstacles are in front of you and figure out a way to uh, find it. And some days you're not going to achieve it, you know, and you can't get stuck on that. You know, I had a, a, a long run planned for yesterday and I just couldn't get it in. So instead of having the attitude of, well, that, you know, that sucks. And now I'm sort of back to square one. It's like, okay, today's another day. You know, what can I do today? Um, that's gonna get me to where I need to be. So, you know, flexibility, adaptability, and recognizing that they're going to be tough times where, um, you're not going to be able to achieve everything you want, but as long as you stay connected to it, that's been really my experience is that if you can stay connected. So if you were planning a 10 mile run, you only got a three mile run and you know, that's better than nothing. Um, if, if you were going to do weight training three times a week, you can only do it. And that's better than nothing. You stay connected so that when the time presents itself, you can take advantage of it. That's That's been my philosophy over the last many decades. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And one of the key messages that I uh, got from this is, you know, and this is especially for people who are listening and you might be very hard on yourself. What Sol just described, it's something called as common humanity. Now, it is not just that these things might be happening to Sol or to me or to you who is listening. It happens to everyone. This is how life is. 
this is that one thing that keeps us all connected. We have issues. There are days that are great. There are days that are not. Days that we might feel miserable, but there are days that we might feel great. And as long as you recognize that this is not something you, as long as you don't get that victim mentality and you get more of the victor mentality and you say, okay, you know what? Things went wrong. I couldn't do it. Maybe you ate some, you know, maybe some French fries or you did something, but don't hold yourself for a response. I mean, don't hold yourself for so long. Just, you know, just think about, be connected. Think about it, that this happens to everyone. It's not life for that. The day, the sun's going to be another day. And as long as, completely agree with soul, as long as you connect it to that self of yours, whether you have like a specific determination and soul, a very good strategy, by the way, which is, you know, a 10 mile run, you couldn't do it. Maybe a 10 mile run. If you couldn't, three mile run, maybe a walk around the street. As long as move, and a lot of neuroscience tell you this, instead of having an all or nothing mentality, if you make your brain is more like, let's say you get more of this motivation high dopamine release in your brain, when you take a step forward. So anyhow, if, if you could do like 10 burpees or like some, or, you know, go for a walk in the afternoon and you wouldn't have done that, that's going to dump a lot of these good neurochemicals in your brain. And it's going to make you feel great about yourself. And another advice that I would like to always give people in situations like this is that we're, we're conditioned to look at life at its ultimate form, like big thing, you know, the, the next big marathon, the, the weight that you had to achieve, the, you know, how many calories you had to cut. But life doesn't operate that way. Life operates, you know, from an atom to a molecule to it goes like that. So when you want to look at things, Look at the smallest things. A pat on the back, or like I like to say, celebrate your small wins. You know, you could say no to that cheesecake. Wow, that's good. Give yourself a pat on the back, and this will by itself make you more happier in life, and you know, make you move towards the next best thing. But then, also, so every time I mean, I've been training for years. I meet people all the time who've been training in different sports and. I know like an, as an, I don't call myself an athlete anymore, but like an ex-athlete, I know that, you know, there are times that you have to sacrifice, right? Sometimes it's going to a late night party or drinking a few drinks or, you know, just having this thing that you have to say no, even, it could even be for the movies so that you could wake up in the morning early or train better or have some sort of a discipline. But this thing can also take you away from things like your loved ones like you know you might prefer going on a run than spending time with your kids or your wife or picking up your skills kids from school um so when we talk about long term and you're the perfect person to talk about this because you've done this big long-term strategy and you've been doing this for a while how does how do you manage or how do you balance between some things that you have to say no to, but which are also important and your training is the key flexibility or there's something else? Well, I think, I think listening to that question, the thing that occurs to me is that you have to think about what your motivation around all of this is, right? If your motivation is to look muscular and to look like an athlete and that's your motivation, that's going to be very different than, 
And if your motivation is, I want to be healthy, it's possible. So I, I think that if your motivation is the latter, that you want to be active and healthy for as long as possible, everything has to flow through that. So that means that, yes, I want to be fit, but for what purpose, right? If the purpose is so that you can enjoy the rest of your life, that you could, you know, play with your uh, grandchildren potentially when you're in your 70s and, you know, not be sedentary at that point, then um, it, it brings more of a balance to it, right? That if, if it's all about you and it's about how you look and about what accomplishments you have in fitness, then, um, you know, then you're going to be less flexible about the rest of your life and you're actually going to be missing out on a lot of life um, that you could have been enjoying. So I think when you come to fitness from a motivation of I'm doing this to promote my health, I'm doing this so that I can be active uh, and make choices about what activities I um, want to undertake for as long as possible, um, then you look at it as this is all for everyone else, right? I'm not doing this just for me. I'm doing this for everyone else in my life so that, that I can be with them in a uh, active and positive way for as long as possible. And that brings you actually closer to the people that matter in your life and not further away. So, so, it's so the I, think, I think it's a challenge. Right. It's a challenge for everybody because it's there's a certain amount of selfishness, frankly, that's involved in be, being uh, that dedicated to a fitness routine because you do have to shut and out ego. other things and ego. Right. And but I think you have to always bring it back to what's what is the ultimate goal here? Is the ultimate goal here so that you look good in your bathing suit or that you look good in a photograph or that you could be on the cover of a magazine? You know, probably that should not be your motivation. Uh, if it is, that's probably not going to be sustainable over a long period of time. Uh, but if your motivation is, as I said, to be an active participant in many aspects of your life, you know, work, family, friends, uh, and that fitness is a way of achieving that, then I think you become a little less selfish and a little more, more flexible in understanding that um, it's all part of the same package, right? We're, we're, all, we're all here for a limited amount of time and the workout in and of itself, that, it, that that's actually a means to an end, the end being an active and healthy life. Yep, exactly. Uh, completely agree. Especially the last part that you said about means versus ends. So most of the times we have these different goals. One is a means goal, like say, I would say like, oh, if I could run you know, 10 miles every day or like 15 miles in uh, every week. And that would be a means goal, right? That's means to getting something. But my end goal should be, oh, I want to do this because that's going to make me feel more confident, make me feel more happy. And every time you know how to distinguish from your means goal and anything else could make you happy, right? Spending time with your friends can make you happy. Going drinking and going crazy can make you happy. But then what's your end goal? Why are you doing that? So you could employ all these small strategies, whether it's a run, whether it's a good dinner, whether it's, you know, reading for an hour every day. These all are going to be your mean goals. And then your end goal is ultimately going to be like that happiness satisfaction and every time one of those means goals don't work just look at your end goal because you are hitting the right things in other aspects of your life that will get you to the end goal and i think sometimes we get 
too narrow focus and we're like, oh, it's the means goal and, you know, we cannot think anymore and we get angry or frustrated. So if you're listening to this, you know, look at your end goal. And now you also spoke about struggle. And the one thing that came into my mind is that people these days, they're facing a lot of craziness, right, around the world. Now they have economic downturns. Inflation is a big one that we're suffering now in UAE quite a lot and all over the world, I'm sure. Uh, there's workplace stress. There's, you know, then we add something else. Now, all of these things are mentally draining. And then we add the stress of overtraining and under recovery. And this increases the whole allostatic load. And when you look at like, like athletes, like who are super, like super enthusiastic type A type of athletes, they always use their body so much that they can get into this overusage of uh, overuse of like certain ligaments or tendons and they mm -hmm. push it too much so how do you like avoid that kind of like a burnout because now you're not just your workout by itself is like crazy and then you have all these other factors like things that are out of your control and that does increase your overall load so how do you sort of like get around that I think it's a process of um, of building uh, a, a process of building strength over time, and by that I mean that um, if you're just starting a fitness routine, um, you have to again take the long view of it. That you can't think of, you know, I want to be able to achieve X um, in a short period of time, and uh, I'm going to make sacrifices to get there. I think that you should always start with very modest goals and then add incrementally. So if I look at where I was, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, uh, basically I was just running. That was probably all I was doing. Um, and then I kept adding on that, uh, onto that with weight training, with flexibility training, with cross training, with some of the, um, physical therapy type of modalities that I was mentioning that I started doing for my knee. And so you start adding on to these things and your body adapts and you have to be conscious of when it's achieved adapt to it and not adding it before your body is ready to accept it. So um, I think that um, over the course of many years, you could train your body to uh, withstand and a fair amount of stress if you introduce that to your body in a way that um, that it can respond to it. So uh, a, a great example of that for me was uh, several years ago. Um, my my kid. It was during the summer. Uh, my kids were away. My wife went to meet one of them overseas for a couple of weeks. And I was thinking, wow, I have two weeks where I'm going to be alone. I know there are not a lot of demands at work during this time of year. I'm just going to like work out like, like all the things that I've always wanted to do. I'm just going to do it for this two weeks and it's going to be awesome. And you know what actually happened was that after about two days, it was like, I feel really not great because I've started doing more than I ever did before. And this is actually not that much fun uh, because my motivation was like, just start adding stuff on without 
really a reason other than it seemed like I could do it. And uh, that wasn't motivation enough. So it uh, landed up that over the course of two weeks, I kind of was doing what I've always done, maybe a little more, but not a lot more. So um, the idea that you need to you know, shock your body into uh, stress so that it can, you know, bounce back and respond is not one that I subscribe to. I subscribe more to you should find your level of adaptation to the stress. And when your body seems to be able to sustain it, then you find incremental amounts of uh, additional stress that your body can adapt to. And, you know, over, and over the course of many years, you'll have found that, you know, you now you're doing a lot and your body seems to be responding to it without breaking down into those breakdowns. Those breakdowns, you know, whether it's a pulled hamstring or aching knees or uh, a back uh, that's sore, you know, that's, that's telling you something about uh, either you're adding too much uh, or you're not taking care of some part of mm -hmm. your body. And those things really need to be uh, listened to very carefully. I love it. I love it. Uh, again, you know, this is the classic example of the process of hormesis where, you know, the poison is in the dose where you can have a little bit of poison. Well, we're not literally meaning poison, but like a little bit of stress every day. And after a certain period of time, you're immune to that kind of stress. And that is the same way, guys. You know, I remember, uh, so I was... I never loved running so much, but like I was super bored. So I was like, let me change things up. This is about like eight or 10 years. And at that time, wireless headphones were the new big thing. So, you know, that we got that first set of wireless headphones. And, you know, when you're running, it's just so easy because you got to put the iPhone or the iPad uh, in your arm. And I was so excited. I was like, okay, let me get one of these. And <laughs> to my surprise, I thought I was a good athlete. I was training a lot, but... I never was running. If I ran, I was like running two or three kilometers max. And I started running. And for the first time, I could run and not worry about the wires being stuck. And I could download my entire playlist and just listen to it wirelessly. So I got into the motivation. I was like, all right, I've just done three kilometers. Let me do five. And then five came. And I was like, mm, let me do eight. And long story short, by the end of all this, I managed to do 20 kilometers. It was really hard. I had to put, and I've never run, I had to put all of these things. But at the end of 20 kilometers, I had to call up my friends to pick me up because I couldn't stand. <laughs> and for days, it was, it was because I wasn't, I just went and I thought it was going to be three kilometers. And then this, just, this music went up, we were listening to high beats and I pushed myself way too much. And that's a classical example of what you shouldn't be doing, everyone who's listening. You know, do three kilometer, do four next week, do five, give your body enough time to recover. And talking about recovery, are you using any sort of like biohacks or gadgets or something else to like, you know, upregulate your performance in some way? Are you a fan of those kind of things? No, I try to keep things really simple uh, and... Um, uh, and by that, I mean, I look for the lowest tech way of achieving what I'm trying to achieve mm -hmm. because I, I just, I, just for me, I, the more complicated, uh, things become the, the less I'm able to sustain it. So, uh, it, it, you know, things that are complicated, things that are time consuming to prepare, like, uh, 
my son at one point, the one who's running the marathon with me, was really into weight lifting uh, a few years ago. And at one point he said to me that I spend more time preparing to get to the gym <laughs> than I do in the gym, yeah. that I have all of the, you know, I, an hour and a half before I have to do the thing. And then 40 minutes before I have to do another supplement. And then I have to you know do a pre-workout thing. And then by the time I get to the gym, it, you know, it's three hours later. So, you know, I, I'm so sensitive about time management that, you know, anything that takes longer than it should uh, or that requires a lot of preparation or is expensive uh, um, uh, are things that I could, you know, find a simple way. And one of the things that I, that I am a big, ad, big advocate of is that, um, you know, and, and this comes out in popular culture in a lot of different ways, but I have a particular view on it, which is that, you know, a, a, a thousand or 2000 years ago, our ancestors, you know, didn't have sedentary lifestyles and they didn't have things delivered to their door that they could then eat. You know, they basically had to uh, expend energy to, to sustain themselves. And, you know, while their life expectancy was a lot shorter, I think there are a lot of things that, you know, we could learn from them, which is that, you know, the human body was, was built um, or has evolved, if that's your from a, a perspective of that we can be very active and that uh, we can, you know, lift heavy things and walk or run long distances because that's how our race, you know, the human race. So that, you know, and none of that was done with technology or with medical science. Um, and, uh, you know, now that we have the benefit of technology and medical science, you know, we can do it in ways that are, you know, smarter or more efficient, but that, you know, ultimately though, our bodies are, are sort of good to go. Like they're, you know, we all come out of the womb unless we have, you know, unfortunately some kind of genetic disease or some kind of chronic condition, you know, most of us are, are built to be active and that we don't need a lot of uh, technology around that. Um, and technology can be helpful, but I find that a lot of times people um, over have an over-reliance on technology and, uh, and complicated science. Uh, and, and that may work for some people. For me, I, I like to keep things super simple. That's good to know. Thank you for sharing that. And while you were saying this, one of the things that, you know, building up on this whole ancestral way of living and how we were not designed to sit in like a cubicle and watch our, uh, you know, phones with our necks down and putting all this cervical spine pressure. We're made to move around, do things. But in the modern environment, like I think 90% of us don't even get outdoor, like enough light that is meant to be. And that, again, impacts our circadian biology and so many other things. But most of the times when people tell me like, hey, man, I've got a desk job. And I want to do, I want to go out and do much, but either I have to commute a long time or something or the other, you know, mm -hmm. people have all their limitations, like in a country like UAE, even if you want to go out, it's maybe 110 Fahrenheit or more. Like, so it is damn hot. We can't even try to do it in a day because you will faint. But what I like to tell people, <laughs> I'd love to hear your take about it. I actually found this from University of Chester. And what they found out was if you're standing for about like, let's say, 
instead of sitting down, if you're standing, your heartbeat increases by 10 beats per minute. And now anyone who's listening must be like, oh, 10 beats per minute is not that much. But then that kind of like 10 beats per minute burns about a 50 calories, extra 50 calories per hour. And then if you could, like right now, I'm, I'm standing, um, this whole workstation is on a standing desk. Then if you, let's say, even if you stand half of your average day at work, that would give you another 150 calories that you burn. And let's say if you go to work five days a week, you're, bur you're burning 750 calories. That's 3,000 calories per month. And then you look at the grand total of things, that comes up to 36,000 calories. Now someone would tell me like, hey, we don't work all throughout the year. So even if you want to take a month or two months off for the vacations and Christmas and holidays, and if you want to just do that math for 10 months, it comes up to 30,000 30, calories. And that's if now just because we're on the marathon topic, it's 30,000 calories would be approximately running not two or three, but like 10 marathons a year. And that would be like eight pounds of fat or more. So, you know, there are sometimes I tell people like, just like you, just do the simple things. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm a big fan of tech and I've, I'm also starting a company, an anti-aging company with all this tech and things involved. But for me, my mantra is the same like yours. Like I feel if something disrupts your time, even an extra minute or two from what you were supposed to do, the return on investment isn't very much because if you had to set up a machine and tie it and do all of these things and you were not able to stack it with other things, for me, I'm a big fan of this. If I could do something and stack it with something that I'm already doing, yeah, it, it could run on in the background. It doesn't hurt me so much. But I achieve, I kill three birds or four birds with the same stone. But anyway, we're coming to the end of this conversation now. And really quick, I want, you, I want to get your, because this show is more about biohacking and, you know, sort of like, getting to the shortcuts and understanding like mm -hmm. what can really move the needle. Tell me in the shortest way possible, your one hack around fear. Fear. Yeah. I, I think you have to uh, always look at where is that fear coming from? Is okay. that fear, is that fear based on some old story, like you, you as a kid, there was something traumatic about the thing you're looking at, or is there an actual threat to you at the moment? Where, okay. where is it coming from? Okay, so fear, where does it come from? What about doubt? I think doubt is actually a, a good thing, um, and you should uh, listen to the doubt um, and um, and trying to understand where it's coming from and what it's telling you. And sometimes you have to succumb to the doubt that maybe this is not a good idea. Maybe the doubt is well-placed. Okay. What about uncertainty? I, I think you have to turn towards the certainty when, when things, okay, nine things are going on, seven of them, I don't know how they're going to turn out. But two of them I do. So let's focus on the things that I can control and the things that I know um, where they're going to go. And the other parts will take them as they come. Okay. What about anxiety and worry? I think that um, it's, it's also could be motivating that 
you shouldn't necessarily look at as this thing that you have to stop, that you want to suppress it. I, you know, just yelling at yourself, like, don't be anxious. Like, well, you know, maybe uh, I need to modify some things if, uh, if my mind is telling, my body is telling me that there's anxiety around it. Maybe this is something that I need to take into consideration and listen to it. Okay, interesting. Okay, and my last question to you is, if you had a time machine and you could go back to your younger self, choose any age, like let's say on an average, like your 30s. So you have a son who's 31 years old. So let's say if you could go back to that age and you could give yourself one piece of advice. Now it could be about, it doesn't have to be specifically about running or, you know, being wearing all these multiple hats, but it could be about anything in life. What would be that one thing be that you would go back and tell yourself? Yeah, I think that one is, is an easy one for me because I think that I have only in the last 10 years or so come to understand the importance of uh, making good human connections, that you need to find people that motivate you, that inspire you, that seem to be doing things that uh, you want to do and make really strong connections with those people so that you can become part of their world and they can introduce you to other people who are part of that world. I, I didn't fully appreciate that until I saw how important those human connections can be. And it's also uh, one thing that you alluded to before is about having that community aspect, because when you're looking at the grand scheme of things, you know, for ex this might be a lousy example, but like you take a few cells in the petri dish, and when you isolate the cell, the cell nine times out of ten they all start dying. When you take an animal in the wild and you take it away from its group or tribe or pack, that that lone wolf or you know whoever that thing will not survive or be as happy as the others in the pack. And us humans, we're also conditioned by the same thing. We're conditioned by a few F words. The first one is fear. We're scared of. I mean, if you've got to be fearful of something to not be like eaten by them or taken over by them. So you've got to have your fear, your sympathetic nervous system on. The second thing is fight. You know, if something, if there comes a time, you have to be able to fight where this is not physical fighting, but like anything that you need to fight to survive. So you've got to be fearful to survive. Mm -hmm. You've got to fight to survive. Next thing is, you know, which is crazy, but it is fertility. You have to be able to reproduce to pass on the genes, pass on your legacy, pass on, because in a, in a natural environment, any species that is not able to reproduce naturally doesn't live for long because nature wants us to procreate and wants us to always, you know, that's us being more useful for this whole cycle. And the last thing, which a lot of people don't focus on is the last F word, which is friends, because you see it in ant community, you know, in, you, it, the smallest creature in the world, the ants, they, they work in a community. You see it in big species and you see this, that one of the biggest secrets to anti-age and increase your longevity is to be among a certain group of people. Like you said, close network people, trust in them, love in them, you know, share things with them. And you will see this across a lot of blue zones, which are these geographical areas in the world where people are living an extraordinary life. The one most important thing, even if they're smoking and drinking or not, they're usually active, but if they're not active, the sense of community and love and dependency that someone is there in their life just makes them live longer. 
So thank you so much for sharing that. I think that whole community aspect is something that we might be running away from right now because of this whole technology and, you know, everyone's just been chatting and texting. It's a, it's a nice thing. It's a, like I, like you said, technology can be really good. But there are also other ways you should make meaningful connections. So I am so grateful for you to come to the show today. I really appreciate all that you've been doing, you know, every kind of all your multiple hats. I still don't know how you juggle them, but like you've been doing a great job. And you're a speaker, you're an author. If someone wanted to get in touch with you or like learn more about you, do you have a website or something that people can go to? Yeah, well, I, I don't have a personal website, but my mm -hmm. if you if you Google my name, Saul Finkelstein, uh, and if maybe if you add New York lawyer, you'll come up with my firm's website. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in there, you could all my contact information is there. So, uh, you know, I think if you Google my name, New York lawyer, it's the first hit you'll see. And I just okay. want to say to you that I, I've learned a lot from you today. Uh, you bring a, an interesting perspective and have me think, already thinking about things a little differently than I did an hour ago. Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful to share your energy and your space. And this is me, everyone, CJ. This is your host signing out from the Shift with CJ podcast. Everyone have a great day, a great week, a great month, a great lifetime. And see you in the next episode. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated. If you want to learn more, then head over to our website, www.shiftwithcj.com.